Hi, I'm David Edelman, a neuroscientist and paleoanthropologist, and welcome to the podcast On Consciousness with Bernard Bars. Bernie and I met in 2005 over a lunch table at the Neurosciences Institute. We started talking about the nature of consciousness, subjectivity, among other things, but also um, sort of a very important area for me, which is, you know, not only what is consciousness, but how do you endeavor to study consciousness in non-human animals, particularly non-human animals that can't report to you using accurate verbal report, language, the way we do, how do you know that they're aware? This may or may not come up, but in any case, that's by way of my, my first introduction to Bernie. Our lunchtime conversations has led to at least two papers later on. Um, I will say, without engaging in any hyperbole, that I consider Bernie to be one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. That is not an exaggeration, because as may be alluded to later by Bernie and or myself, up until relatively recently, and in scientific years recently might mean 30 or 40 years ago, um, consciousness was not taken terribly seriously as, as, a, as a sort of an endeavor, either in psychology or in hard neuroscience. Um, Bernie was one of those folks early on who helped to change that. So without further ado, Bernie Bars, what I am gonna do for the sake of, of making life easier for Bernie because of eye issues is I will read the first selection from his book and then we can kind of unpack the various themes. Bernie and I can do a dialogue and then you guys can chime in with questions and we'll take it as it goes. All right, so I'm gonna start with this. First bit, you are conscious and so am I. This much we can tell pretty easily since when we are not conscious, our bodies wilt, our eyes roll up into their orbits, our brain waves become large, slow, and regular. Think of deep sleep. And we cannot read a sentence like this one. While the outer signs of consciousness are pretty clear, it is our inner life that counts for most of us. The contents of consciousness include the immediate perceptual world, inner speech and visual imagery, the fleeting present and its fading traces in immediate memory, bodily feelings like pleasure, pain, excitement, surges of feeling, autobiographical events when they are remembered, clear and immediate intentions, expectations, and actions, explicit beliefs about oneself in the world, and concepts that are abstract but focal. In spite of decades of behavioristic avoidance, that is, the world of uh, Skinner, the world of his teacher, Watson, um, few would quarrel with this list today. At this instant, you and I are conscious of some aspects of the act of reading. I certainly am. The shape of those letters against the white texture of this page and the inner sound of those words. But we are probably not aware of the touch of your chair, of a certain background taste, the subtle balancing of our body against gravity, a flow of conversation and in the background, or the delicately, delicately guided eye fixations needed to see this phrase. Nor are we now aware of the fleeting present of only a few seconds ago of our affection for a friend, and some of our top life goals. These unconscious elements are as important as the conscious ones because they give us natural comparison conditions. For example, 
We consciously label the world focus just now as a noun, yet the sentence would be incomprehensible if highly specialized language analyzers located in the cortex of the brain just above the left ear did not treat focus as a noun unconsciously. The meaning would change significantly if you understood it to be a verb or an adjective. It is revealing to compare these conscious and unconscious aspects of the same word. On reading focus, the word focus, you are surely unaware of its nine alternative meanings, though in a different sentence, you would, be, you would instantly bring a different meaning to mind. What happened to the others? A wealth of evidence supports the notion that some of those meanings existed unconsciously for a few tenths of a second before your brain decided on the right one. Most words have multiple meanings, but only one at a time can become conscious. This seems to be a fundamental fact about consciousness, and this is something that you and I will get into later. Um, these examples illustrate the sense of the word consciousness we aim to understand. That is, focal consciousness of easily described events like I see a printed page, or he imagined his mother's face. These examples illustrate a sense of the word consciousness we aim to understand. That is focal consciousness of easily described events, like I see a printed page, or he imagined his mother's face. A great body of evidence shows that conscious contents like this can be reported as conscious with great accuracy under the right conditions. These conditions include immediate report, freedom from distraction, and some way for the outside observer to verify the report. These are standard laboratory conditions that apply to thousands of experiments in perception, memory, attention, and mental imagery. They also fit the demonstrations presented here. Whenever a question about the meaning of consciousness arises, I would invite you to revisit the paragraphs that I've just read above. The meaning of consciousness intended here is best illustrated by your own experience. Verifiable public report is the key to scientific evidence, but your experience, you as an individual, your experience here and now is quite a good index to it. All of the subjective demonstrations used here can be tested objectively, and all the objective facts can be experienced by you and me. That is why we believe we can talk about consciousness as such. Coming back to consciousness. When a scattered group of scientists begin to, began to return to consciousness in the early 1980s, see how recent this was, the topic was not popular. Psychologists and brain scientists will remember a time when consciousness was essentially taboo thanks to the dominance of philosophical behaviorism. Yet in the 25 centuries before 1900, the study of mental life was a central topic for thoughtful people in many, many cultures, for Plato, Aristotle, Lao Tzu, Gautama Buddha, and the Vedantists, it was a plain truth that all of us are conscious. And I think we will stop there. Great. And let's kind of just dissect what we, what we just went through here. Good. So, um, Bernie, so what would you say about the idea that there's something as, as seemingly privileged, right, as privileged, <laughs> as the conscious experience is for all of us. That is, it is unique unto us. It's not something, I can't be you. I can't think like you. I can't experience the world as you do. Even though you might go to great pains to unpack the world for me and give me a fairly good thumbnail of what it is you're feeling or thinking, it's still not you emanating from me. It's, it's a privileged experience. 
So what do we make of this, Bernie? I mean, it, this is something rather unique in scientific studies because in hard-nosed empiricism, this is not something we end up talking about. It's generally observable phenomena that can be rendered as sort of facts. Okay, so how do we how do we deal with that subjective objective dichotomy, that conflict, but seeming I, conflict? I've been thinking about this for a while. I've gradually started to come to the belief that the word science is too limiting. Uh, and the reason for that is that as I've talked with various people on the web usually, uh, including very good physicists, they actually thought, think that science began 500 years ago in the Renaissance. That idea is clearly false. Uh, if you just scratch a little bit, you know, it, it, it goes away. Uh, because it wasn't just Copernicus, it wasn't just Newton, it, was, it wasn't just uh, maybe Descartes was a little earlier or whatever. It wasn't just the age of reason. Uh, it wasn't, uh, those were not the first empiricists. The first empiricists were probably hunters and foragers and uh, and nomads and uh, uh, people who just um, had to observe the world very carefully mm -hmm. or they would have died uh, or they would, have, would not have had offspring. Uh, and increasingly, there's a field called uh, archaeoastronomy, sometimes called that, uh, and I suppose it's part of paleoanthropology, which David has a PhD in, as it happens. Uh, and uh, and basically, uh, to, to me, increasingly, it means that what we're studying is the intelligence, the empirical intelligence, I should say, of extremely ancient people, extremely widely spread around the world. Uh, so the idea that science is something new, uh, certainly the acceleration of science is new, a, a vast number of discoveries in the Renaissance and since the Renaissance, all that is new. Uh, but we are totally missing the point in a sense because intelligent human beings who observe things very carefully and who I think may have used a star compass even in wandering uh, over the savanna of Africa which is essentially, to, to oversimplify, a, a plane. So you don't have mountains that are helpful to orient yourself, and you can't see them anyway at night. Mm -hmm. What you can see at night, if you're uh, if you're in south, the southern half of uh, of uh, Africa below the equator, is the Southern Cross. And if you're north of that, or sufficiently far north of that, I don't know if that's how far north of the equator you have to be, uh, then you see the North Star. Big Dipper, et cetera, et cetera, well, all these. Let me pull you up there, stop you just briefly and, and say, so we can sort of come to an agreement between you and I that, and, and I think that your thesis here is that human observation is a perfectly valid aspect of this kind of study, this sort of practitioner, and perhaps it's been too long either neglected or denied. Is that kind of what we're oh, saying? Yes, yes, that's that's exactly right. 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 
which is mighty peculiar because uh, if you read Marcel Proust around 1900 or William James, his great book is 1890, uh, or you read William Shakespeare or you read Moliere, uh, these are people who understood about people and that meant understanding about the consciousness so, of other people. Yeah. So just briefly, um, just to take one of your examples, Marcel Proust is particularly interesting because he has these rather lurid descriptions of eating the Madeleine, the smell, the taste of the Madeleine in the cafe in the French, French cafe in Paris. He talks about this and it's very lyrical, of course, it's literary, this is Marcel Proust, but he's tremendously effective in evoking the nature of human memory, the nature of feeling, feeling something. Uh, the world suffused with feeling and what else is the world to us humans because we're looking through these eyes, we have all these layers of filters. As a neuroscientist, I consider this all the time, that the world is not coming to us in some sort of pure stream, right? That it, it's, there are various biological filters, the way the eye processes the world and then the brain in turn processes what the eye sends through the lateral geniculate to it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's subjective from you know the the point at photo the point of photoreception on in, um, and there are people in the literary world as well as the world of science and philosophy. I believe, and you, I think you would agree, mm -hmm. who were really really good at evoking all of this early on, and we for you know all of our great advances in the modern world, we sort of all but ignored that for quite some time. Correct. Yes, and uh, this, this is another amazing thing, uh, the power of the taboo uh, against subjectivity, which is consciousness, uh, over almost a century, and in fact it continues in certain hidden places today in the sciences, uh, which is one of my continued complaints. Let me ask you this, Bernie. How, how do we study something that is so profoundly subjective? Modern science is finally getting around to this, right? We are finally doing this. We have various tools. We have neuroimaging techniques which are getting more and more resolved both in terms of space and time by, by the year, by the decade. We can look at what the brain is doing and map this onto people's reports of what they are seeing and what they are experiencing. What else? How else can we can we sort of study the nature of subjectivity writ small in the brain, perhaps? How do we unpack this? How can we study this as scientists? In, in a lot of ways, we, we simply don't know. Uh, but we have some good examples uh, with uh, Newton's prism experiment, for example, where you take sunlight and open your shutters and at Cambridge and let the sunlight in and let it fall on one side of a three-sided pr glass prism. And what happens, you know, this is slightly miraculous luck, uh, what happens is that on the other side you see essentially the colors of the rainbow, uh, which you can visually tell apart, uh, the, you can tell the the, the various spectral colors quite clearly if you have a nice clear prism. Uh, and that started uh, centuries of increasingly improved research. And the good part about that is that the, uh, the colors uh, 
uh, are real. Uh, they're real biologically in the sense that we have receptors for particular parts of the color spectrum. Uh, and they are real in the sense that it was possible to figure out a few centuries later that these things actually correspond to wavelengths of light. So that is kind of a historic uh, example of how we might go about this. Now, it should be said uh, that, as far as I know, we're nowhere near that with the taste and smell, and we're not really all that close, although we're getting closer, uh, with robot vision in a natural scene, because natural scenes are much more complex. Uh, and, um, and, and so we, there's actually uh, considerable progress over a period of centuries. Um, and then we have had a century of taboo, which has probably set us back, I would assume. Uh, but one of the weirdly interesting things about taboos, like behaviorism, is that they are about consciousness in some sense. Because the word consciousness was, in fact, I think, I probably got fired from my job for mentioning the word consciousness too often and too obnoxiously. And so, they, were, they were probably right to get rid of me. But yeah. So, so Ber Bernie, Bernie unpacked a really, really intriguing example, the example of what we call color, right? And it's very, very clear that the brain does, in its own particular way, divide up the worlds of electro uh, visible light, i.e. electromagnetic you know, the electromagnetic spectrum in the visible range for us in such a way that we, we recognize distinctions. These discriminations, we can make these discriminations. The intriguing thing, and I think this, this might be sort of an interesting point of discussion for Bernie and I, and perhaps for you, you, you folks as well, is color, you know, of course, color, there are terms for color, which figures into language. And the intriguing thing, there was a very famous study when I was a young, uh, not so young graduate student in the 1980s and 90s. Um, there was a study by two anthropologists, Berlin and Kay, about the perception of color across culture. And the most intriguing thing about their findings, as controversial as they were then and somewhat controversial now, is that different cultures map the range of the visible, range of visible light differently. We all recognize four primary colors broadly, right? That's red, that's yellow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all do that. That's a commonality among all humans, without exception. The intriguing thing is when you go into a particular culture, there are cultures that don't recognize the distinction between, say, pink or mauve and, and red. They'll simply call it essentially their equivalent of red. They don't divide it up. If you go to Inuit culture, they may divide up sort of the lighter spectrum in a very different sort of way than we do. They have umpteen words for certain things, the old, the old catch-all that they have, you know, eight words for snow or whatever it is. But that's not far from the truth. So that's intriguing because that points to the dichotomy between objective reality, the fact that there is a physical nature to, to light spectra, right? It does exist and the distinctions do exist. But the brain divides it up. And furthermore, as human beings, we, be, by virtue of our upbringing, by virtue of our own individual experience in a culture, we further divide up that world and come up with terms that may not exist universally. They may not exist in other cultures. Do you think that's a fair 
a fair assessment? Well, here, here's a question uh, to people with us here. How many people think that men have see as many labeled colors, I should say labels colors because people have names for certain colors. Uh, do you think men have more names for colors or women have more names for colors? Yeah, I, I would think so too. Non-gender. That sounds like a but. I would think so too. But? Yes, there is. Absolutely. That's, that's interesting. Uh, but if, let's suppose you do a kind of a basic diagnosis to see if, if you're trichromat and, you know, you, you pass those little Munson color chip tests. Let me, let me just stop short and do a little sidebar, which is, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with trichromacy, the, the notion that you have three different flavors of photoreceptors in your eye. Some people are actually born with a mutation. They actually have a fourth. They have tetrachromacy. So they actually can divide the world up into, into far richer bands of color than you or I can. But that, that essentially accounts for our color vision. And as you say, in males, color blindness is something that's more prevalent. Absolutely. Interesting. So, uh, so let's assume that, that we have people with predictable color vision, right? There's uh, two different genders. Um, my prediction is that, uh, that women are going to have more names and more distinctions if you look at the spectrum, uh, if you look at a kind of continuous spectrum. Um, and that's a prediction, and I could probably check it tonight uh, if I look in PubMed. Uh, there's probably evidence right there staring me in the face, which is always good. Anyway, uh, uh, so I think there are likely to be gender differences. There are many other sensory sure. differences that are likely to exist uh, between men and women who are otherwise genetically in every other way uh, quite similar. Mm -hmm. um, and part of this obviously has to do with the experiences one has and the things one pays attention to early in childhood mm -hmm. because the, the final common path in a sense for consciousness is the cortex, this humongous thing sitting between our ears and going actually quite deeply because the paleocortex, which is the ancient cortex, is still there with us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have olfaction and taste. Right. And, and we might not even be able to do uh, uh, trail sniffing, which is something that animals need to do. Mm -hmm. And humans in, in natural environments also need to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and that part of the cortex, the hippocampus, is... Um, is also very spatial right. because you have to figure out uh, not just, you know, did the predator come this way that I can, in a way that I can smell the urine on, on the bottom of the bush, mm -hmm. uh, but when was the predator? How long ago? How long ago? Mm -hmm. Was it before this morning's dew? Uh, was it after yesterday's rain? Uh, is it old enough so that I can safely run around here without getting jumped on by a cat? Mm -hmm. uh, all those kinds of things, which are 
crucial, crucial for survival and reproductive fitness. So Bernie, this this points to a really, really important leitmotif that you that you touch on at many points in this book and in your in, in all of your collected works. Well, or at least tangentially uh, touch on, which is the notion of embodiment. Brains are embodied. This is a very important concept. And let me let me just stay unpack this a little bit, and I can let Bernie kind of hold forth on sure. it a bit more. Sure. Embodiment is super important. That is how you're put together. Your sensoria, the nature of sensation for you, is dictated by the kinds of eyes that you have. The nature of your your um, cochlea, you know that semicircular canal, all of that stuff. Not simply, we have to be really, really careful when we embark on this sort of seemingly rich area of study. We can't get too fixated on the workings of the brain. We have to be equally as fixated on essentially your sensory and your motor apparatus, because those are going to, at the very get-go, color your world consciously for you. So I'll give you a quick example, and then I'll turn it back to Bernie. The mantis shrimp. Now I study, some of you may or may not know, I study octopuses, but one, one side a aspect for me, which is really kind of cool, is the nature of vision in marine animals, and in particular marine invertebrates. So mantis shrimp, they have between 13 and 15 photoreceptors, which means at least, theoretically at least, as far as we know, we haven't studied it in great detail, they are dividing up the spectrum, the, the, the spectrum uh, of, of light in a manner that's much, conceivably much more rich and variegated than anything we can come up with. Now, you might ask, why exactly are they doing it? Well, if you look at mantis shrimp, female and male, they're very, very colorful. They're extremely, they're beautiful. They're sort of beautiful crustaceans. They're gorgeous, but they have these amazing eyes, right? But that speaks as an example to the differences in embodiment and how that touches upon the nature of conscious experience for us. What do you think? Uh I like it. Uh. <laughs> I had a shrimp for lunch. <laughs> Wait a second. You probably ate one of my best friends. I'm offended. I didn't have eyes anymore. Oh, well. Anyway. The, the interesting things uh, uh, with cephalopods um, is that their brains don't look anything like mammalian or vertebrate brains. Uh, the brains are wrapped around the throat, around the trachea, um, which makes life hell for biologists who try to generalize between, you know, mammals and... Tell me about it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and uh, it genuinely does, yes. Uh, um, and, and yet they have, if you simply watch a squid or an octopus, uh, the way they move, or, or the way... Uh, let me first suggest, this is simply from observation, and I haven't checked it with David, so it may not be true, uh, but, but when they're static, uh, they seem to be reaching out, you know, uh, and tasting or feeling or maybe, uh, I don't know, are, are they chromopores? Well, they're, they're sampling the world. They're actually doing something tantamount to sort of sniffing the environment. And arguably, if you talk to folks like Roger Hanlon, who's the big muckety-muck at the Marine Biological Laboratories in Witts Hole, he would say, oh, well, their skin is actually functioning as a visual organ. We have kind of limited evidence that there's a photo, there's an mRNA found on the skin that's, that's 
that's associated with a photoreceptor in their eyes. So that's led people to believe that, in fact, the skin is picking up, you know, some sort of wavelength differences within a range of light, the blue, the blue spectrum, somehow. But this points to a really interesting thing, Bernie, yet another difference in embodiment, that the octopus, not only does it have the eight arms, of course, and not only does it have these sort of sniffers that are usually built into its suckers. The suckers are kind of the Swiss army knife of, of cephalopodology, right? They, 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 they use them, they deploy them for smelling the world, they deploy them for sticking to the world, um, and, and in various other ways, they're, sending, they're also sending signals to the central brain. But the intriguing thing about cephalopods, and octopus in particular, is they're not like us in this notion of having most of their nervous system centralized between their eyes. They have two, if you're a common octopus, you have 200 million neurons bet between your eyes or behind your eyes. The other 300 million are in your arms. And the most shocking thing, to me at least, initially when I started studying them was, those arms are sort of functioning pseudo-autonomously. They're doing a lot of this without kind of, excuse the, the term, knowledge of the central brain. They're going about their business, and then they, they have a circular cord, a nerve cord, that connects all of the arms, little ganglia, those little mini-brains in each arm. They're connected together, and they can kind of sub-process the world before any of that information even hits the central brain. But eventually it does hit. If they, set, they, they season something that's, hey, it smells good, yeah, let me alert the central brain. All of a sudden, the central brain goes, the eyes wheel around, look, and then the octopus makes a very deliberate move and grabs whatever it is that it has just sniffed. That's both central um, processing in the nervous system and parallel distributed, which is sort of alien for us. It's not so alien if you're a person who's involved in, in perhaps uh, AI work or perhaps considering problems of how how you can get machines to unpack the world. AI people have also considered this notion of parallel distributed sorts of modeling for something nervous system-like. But this is rather amazing, right? I mean, it's incredible. It is amazing. I, I was actually going to say something even simpler, hmm. which is the, uh, the same thing, you, uh, same point you just made about uh, octopi striking, uh, which is that if you see them s swimming, what do they look like? Black ink. Huh? Black ink. Black ink. <laughs> uh, black ink, yes. Well, they look like fish. They can. Because the hydrodynamics of fast forward movement is presumably the same. So the constraints evolutionarily and, and uh, environmentally in the experience of the animal, uh, and I should, should say here, in probably the conscious experience of the animal and anybody who wants to get on my case on that you're very welcome to because <laughs> they can't prove it uh, but it's a it's a plausible hypothesis right. i think uh, and by now we used to argue about other mammals you know we used to argue about birds and so on uh, the arguments got away nobody nobody who's involved with with the neurobiology of uh, other animals, uh, probably uh, other, I should say, other animals that have cortex-like brains. There we go. Uh, there's very little debate about that kind of thing. And biologists are about as insecure at times uh, as psychologists uh, because, because they 
especially when it comes to subjectivity, right? Uh, I've gotten to know some very fine biologists uh, well enough so that they're sort of willing to hint, you know, what it is they truly believe and what they truly believe, in my guess at least, and never quite say it, um, is, is that most of the creatures with brains like ours are probably conscious. Uh, now this, this creates hell on earth again, uh, because there are people who believe, and they believe it very sincerely, that we must protect all animal life that can feel pain. And I can empathize with that to the max. And of course, we also know that it's impossible because you cannot be a, a, a lion uh, you cannot even be a human hunter, which is our basic background, uh, uh, and and not hurt hurt other people for that matter, but also hurt animals. Mm. Uh, it's part of the job, uh, and it doesn't stop when you become a farmer. It doesn't stop when you become uh, a, a highly technologically sophisticated person like all of us are, and we prefer to get our food from sources that are carefully hiding their, the source of the protein. Uh, and so we are all living in a kind of taboo that I certainly would agree with everybody on. If, uh, if, if you want to have this taboo, I certainly want to have it. Uh, but, uh, but there is suffering going on. And, and some of it can be uh, ameliorated, uh, and some of it cannot. Uh, so, so there's, there's a tragic quality to, uh, to this aspect of life. Uh, I don't know if any way of escaping it. Uh, I have a friend who loves the idea of uh, artificial meat. Uh, that's not going to hurt any living thing. As a result of which, nobody's going to grow any living thing because there's no benefit to them. There's no benefit to farmers in, 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 in growing artificial meat. Right. So, so Bernie, this, this brings, this opens up actually not just one um, sort of landscape, but actually two at a time. You, you've touched on something which is a really, really important ethical concern, particularly now. So, and I leave this as an open-ended question, and I'm sure for, for the sake of both brevity and, and our preserving our necks, I'll, I'll leave it at this, which is, um, you know, how do we deal with sentient life that isn't human life. Um, how do we, as both as scientists and as normal sort of everyday workaday humans doing what we do, because of, of course it, it sort of has, it does hold an important um, kind of uh, place in, in our, our psyches. Think about the chimps that were recently, not so recently, within the past 10 years, that were finally retired from the NIH. There were, I guess, what, 50 or 60 remaining chimps in the possession of the NIH, and they finally retired them, so I think they're, they're in some sort of a reserve in upstate New York, I always forget. But it was decided at a certain point, and not, not arbitrarily, but probably based on a lot of pressure from among other things, animal rights group, but the public at large, that it was time to get off, uh, you know, exposing these animals, which seem, which are truly sentient. They do these amazing things. They're the closest 
They're our closest living relatives. And it was time to sort of stop sort of, well, for lack of a better term, brutalizing them, stop subjecting them to, you know, rare and common tropical diseases, et cetera, et cetera. And that in a certain sense, it was both a, a, a rational and an emotional decision because, of course, there are non, non-chimp and even non-animal models that may or may, not, may suffice in this instance, and we can replace them. But you also speak to something which raises the issue of evolution and the notion that, in fact, sentience is, as far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as you're concerned, it's certainly not unique to humans, and anybody who owns a dog would argue vociferously, hey, my dog is aware. My dog knows the deal. He knows the, the whole thing. He, he knows what's going on. He understands what I'm saying. And he has memories that he can recall and act on those, those memories that he recalls. Okay, so fair enough. Um, but as I said before, and as you reinforced, embodiment is an important issue and evolution doesn't care. Evolution has probably shaped up conscious experience. Certainly we know in more animals than just us, certainly across a wide swath of mammals, perhaps all mammals, perhaps even within reptiles. I have friends who have studied Galapagos tortoises for many years and they would say, hey, man, Galapagos tortoises are even smarter than octopuses, which may or may not be true. They're just slower but they actually solve problems in a very sophisticated way. And they live a long time. So talk about experience. Imagine meeting the tortoise who actually knew Charles Darwin. And he, and he died only 10 years ago, by the way, less than 10 years ago. But he was, he was supposedly 180 years at his death, which is rather extraordinary. But, but given all of that, I see these two things, and maybe you can chime in on whether you agree or disagree. I see this notion of evolution and the way it shapes things up, and it doesn't give a damn what lineage you are, whether you're a mammal or you're a cephalopod or you're a reptile, another kind of vertebrate. Consciousness probably can, has appeared at multiple points, at multiple nodes in the, in the history of complex life. I, I'd say that's a reasonable... but. But having said that, now thrown into our laps as human beings with this very complex cultural set of cultural constructs, we have to, we are disposed to unpacking this ethically and morally. Because ethically and morally, we're making decisions about our fellow humans based on these very same sorts of principles. So some people might argue it's a totally arbitrary to cut non human animals off at the pass and not consider conscious states, feelings, pain, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that's fair? Oh, I think it's fair. Uh, uh, this debate is, uh, is sometimes called parallelism, evolutionary parallelism, or evolutionary convergence. Mm -hmm. um, and it essentially, if you, if you take it as a useful assumption to believe that consciousness is functional, that it has biological payoffs, basically, both for survival and for reproductive fitness. Uh, and if you can answer the question of what is the functionality of being conscious, we, we, I think we, we know with near certainty that if you have a cortex, you're probably conscious. Uh, cortex is is a is extraordinarily huge, enormous thing that is staring us right in the face as soon as we, you know, as soon as you take the top of the cranium off, um, and it happens to also be 
let's call it the most important thing, or let's call it the most prominent thing, or the most the thing that we're trying to talk about here. So cortex is is this blatantly large uh, organ. It's the uh, I believe it's the single largest functional entity uh, within the central nervous system. And it's it's where you essentially keep your conscious stuff, right? In terms of recall and everything. It's where you keep all your good stuff, all your all your goodies. The contents are there, right? Yeah, the goodies, right? Or the baddies, or both, right? Right, and yeah. and, and there's actually a very interesting distinction there that's worth making. Actually, Sigmund Freud talked about this early on. You know, he developed his ideas over a period of time, and early on, when he talked about consciousness, he talked about perception, and when he talked about the unconscious in his vocabulary. He talked about memory. And as a first approximation, that's damn good. Hmm. Uh, because the, the major types of perception that we talk about, which project to the cortex in, in special regions, uh, those, the, 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 the big five that Aristotle talked about, uh, those, are, those emerge in consciousness and after we have a conscious experience, especially novel conscious experience, we go to sleep, we go into slow, slow wave sleep, and that uh, the, the traces of those experiences are then deposited uh, throughout the brain. And that's unconscious uh, most of the time. It's unconscious while it is, quote, in storage, uh, which is a, a poor way of saying it, but it's unconscious when we're not using those particular synapses. Uh, so, so Freud wasn't too bad about this thing. And as a first approximation, when we're uh, these days, especially when we try to do experimental studies on uh, consciousness, they're mostly perception studies. So let me ask you this, Bernie. Um, and this is a very pregnant question among consciousness researchers, researchers some of whom actually deny its importance. But is it possible to be conscious and not have some sort of a memory system? Not if synapses are, are memory traces. Uh, because basically what happens every night when you go to sleep, uh, your cortex rewires. Uh, and if you're very young or you've just gone through major life changes, it rewires quite a bit, and it may take multiple nights, perhaps, to, to make the adjustments. But essentially, you, you're growing synapses all the time. And, and the re this is kind of mind-boggling, because the most recent estimate uh, I've read about the number of synapses is that it's about a quarter of quadrillion mm. synapses. And that, that brings uh, to up... That brings up it's, it's like beating a dead horse for all my friends in the audience who have heard this comparison before. But my late dad was fond of a sort of a little factoid, not such a little factoid, that the notion of the number of connections in, in the central nervous system, in, in the brain. And he would say, well, look, if you want a good way to visualize the complexity and the, the numbers in terms of degree, um, start, you want to count, count the number of synapses one per second. How long would it take you to finish counting if you counted one synapse per second, if you're counting for the human brain? Mm -hmm. um, you would finish counting roughly 32 million years from now. So that gives you an idea of the immensity 
of this this thing. I mean, arguably the most or one of the most complex uh, objects in the known universe, the, the human brain. But it's rather extraordinary, right? So that's pregnant with possibilities, right? Because for all those possible connections, there's a possible way or a myriad of different ways with which you can deal with the world or you can map the world. Does that seem there? It, it does. And actually, I think there's evidence, very nice evidence right now, uh, that using, using um, sensory feedback, you can actually learn to control single neurons in the temporal lobe. And of course, it's not just a single, what you basically do with this kind of study is you ask people who are having brain surgery, basically, but waking brain surgery, so they're, all they have is, is basically local anesthesia to make sure that there's no pain. Uh, but they're fully awake and they can carry on conversations and so on. It started with uh, mostly with Wells of Penfield um, uh, quite early on in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and, and so now you can pick out any neuron you like and land an electrode, just a tiny, tiny needle electrode, uh, on the cell so you can pick up its activity. And then you can play back, let's say, an auditory click uh, every time that cell fires. And under those conditions, quite quickly, you can learn to voluntarily control a single cell picked out at random from your temporal lobe, which has quite a few of those cells. Uh, how exactly that happens is, is not clear. But the phenomenon, I think, is, is well established by now. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this is one of the questions you can go home and, and solve if, if you like. So, but, good, good luck. So, so before, but, right. so before we open up for discussion, and I hope we get a lively discussion with good questions and interchange, um, let me touch on one of your favorite topics, which is the notion of limited capacity and Bernie, if you could first kind of unpack that for folks, just give them a, a sketch of what limited capacity, what we're referring to when we talk about limited capacity, and then what the mystery about that is. So give them the definition, and then we can sort of talk about the mystery. Yeah, uh, this has been known for a very, very long time, probably as long as human beings have thought about other human beings. Uh, basically, if, if I hear the sound of a bird chirping in this ear, and I hear the same sound in this ear, which happens most of the time, uh, I can tell where the sound is coming from, and it's perceived as a single gestalt, a single thing. Uh, if I offset the input by, I think it's just about, let's call it five or 10 milliseconds to one ear and the other ear, I now think that sound is coming from a different place. If I offset that by a 100 milliseconds, a tenth of a second, I can no longer fuse it. I no longer recognize that as the same sound. And that's a general fact that applies to all the senses that I'm aware of, uh, including touch and so on. Uh, so there's something about I think this is a fact about consciousness, I should mention. 
conscious contents for some crazy reason are always internally consistent. And that happens even if you feed different information into your different senses. Uh, and, and that is a puzzle because why is that true? It's a very general point about certainly about sensory consciousness that actually also applies to language mm -hmm. uh, because in language uh, the more common words have more meanings. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so very, very common words might have a dozen, two dozen meanings which you instantly recognize in a consistent way, you remove the oops, you remove the ambiguity without knocking over the microphone. <laughs> and you don't even know that it's happened, of course, because it's unconscious or maybe it's pre-conscious, whatever you want to call it. But it all ends up seeming consistent. Right. Uh, this is uh, a formidable achievement mm -hmm. of the cortex and I don't know of anybody that has an adequate explanation for it. It's very tough and it, what's extraordinary about what Bernie just said about this observation is brains will sort of weave together the world in these, it, it, they'll, they'll, they'll operate with the best information that they've got and often it's not the right information but they turn it, there's perceptual unity that goes on. They, they integrate all of this, even if it's not really right. And one good example, and maybe it's misplaced, but you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. Uh, I think about the McGurk effect, which is it's sort of famous. This notion that you, if you watch a woman, a woman, um, and I forget the name of the experimental psychologist, but she, she, it's an amazing finding. Watch her saying, Ba, 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 right? And you're seeing her full on. Um, but actually, the video that you're watching has been manipulated. She's not actually saying that. She's saying something like la, 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 la. But your brain is constructing this odd chimera from what it's got, the best it can do. When you close your eyes and you no longer have the visual percept of her mouth moving and her face doing what it does, you hear the true sound. That's rather extraordinary. And that's, again, that's, that's an aspect of how our nervous systems are put together that speaks to this notion, uh, uh, I think, to some extent of, of limited capacity, of working to construct the best dynamic representation of the world that you can get if you're a nervous system. And often it's not necessarily right. And what's equally mysterious about it, I think, is that it's also not necessarily adaptive, correct? Well, uh, you can be walking and texting and, and, you know, get killed walking into traffic <laughs> precisely because of this weird limited capacity thing. And it's not just human beings who are, you know, uh, too, too wedded to their electronics. Uh, it's rabbits running around and, you know, getting distracted just momentarily. Uh, and suddenly they're, uh, they're hamburger for, for some predator. That's right. So, uh, so this, is a, this is a paradox, I think, biologically, yeah. uh, because it seems so dysfunctional. Uh, mm -hmm. And yet it can, uh, it, it's true, as far as I know, for all mammals. And it's probably true for, uh, for reptiles and 
amphibians and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, but it's certainly true for mammals uh, and certainly true for human beings, and it's dangerous. It is dangerous. So, uh, so what's, what's going on, God? Yeah, and, and I think that's really, really true, but I also think you need to sort of temper that observation with the notion that, well, at least Darwinian evolution isn't about perfection. That's sort of a mythology, survival of the fittest, which is sort of a circular, it's kind of a tautology. We, don't, we really shouldn't think of it in those terms, or the drive to perfection. It isn't. It's, it's as my friend Mark Mitten, the magician, used to often say, it's not about Mr. Right in terms of evolution, it's about Mr. Right now. In other words, what works in a given moment statistically, which is to say some of your outliers will probably die as a result of walking into traffic while they text. But for the most part, a lot of folks won't sort of do that. But sort of getting back to this whole notion, I think in general, it's fair to say that consciousness in a way sort of shines a spotlight, a literal spotlight on the world. Mm. You have a spotlight and it's, it's circumscribed, it's constrained both in space and also in terms of connecting the dots and making a perceptual whole in time. Because as you mentioned, if you separate things like the sight of something and the sound of something, if you separate them enough, they will no longer hold together as a unified percept. So the sight and the sound will no longer be represented as a single thing, which is extraordinary. And that speaks to this sort of limited capacity, I think. Yeah, uh, I think you and I have an interesting debate coming up. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, on this question, because you're very articulate, you've, you've thought through this for years, right? I think, I think it's paradox. I think it's paradox. I think there's something, something went wrong, you know, about 100 million years ago, or rather 200 million years, if we're looking at mammals, mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, and that's a joke, right? Because evolution doesn't work that way. Uh, something goes wrong. Usually, the species that goes wrong just loses out in the competition against their cousins who don't have that particular wrongness. Um, but in this particular case, there is something weird about this. And it's, it's much better, I think, to finish this talk with a question uh, than with as if we know the answers. I don't think we know the answers to that one, but you know, we'll have a good debate about it. Good. Well, that, I think that's that's sort of enough of a of a heavy drink for now. Um, let's kind of open it up. Let's sort of, let's talk, shall we? Questions. Um, about oh, forty years ago, I was in Atlanta, sitting in the lobby of the Hyatt Regency Hotel. There's another couple at a meeting. And the lady says, oh, isn't that Bob walking across it? But that's not his wife he's with. And I said, that's interesting. Yeah, and he was wearing a black suit, I remember. And um, many years later, I was here in San Diego, and I met his cousin. And his cousin said to me, um, how well do you know Bob? I said, very well. She said, well, you know, his wife cheated on him before he cheated on her. And that kind of surprised me because I didn't know many women that cheated on their husbands. More husbands cheated on their wives. Well, we had a tribute the other day for him because he passed away. And I saw the girl that I had met that day, the young girl. And I said, I pulled her aside. I said, didn't you tell me when we met in the salon that day that Marge had cheated on him before he cheated on her? She couldn't remember. She wasn't sure. 
She said, it's probably true if I told you that, but I don't remember that. Yeah, and it's really extraordinary and, and how we, you know, some of us can really do aces, an ace of a job confabulating the world, right? We, 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 our brains tell a story, but the narrative isn't necessarily really even the half-truth, right? Um, so an interesting example would be something that many defense attorneys and certainly many prosecutors around the United States are very familiar with, where, whereby you can show a potential a witness um, in, say, a private deposition. You show them a series of photographs of a crime scene, okay? And they say, oh, yes, I recall the, the, the uh, alleged killer was, I saw him standing around that corner and doing this. And if you add an extra photo to that stream of photos that has no, it may be a similar scene, it may be similar enough that they can't tell that it's a different place, but it adds an element that was, was not actually there. Their brain will build it into the narrative and it becomes essentially sort of truth. It's not veridical, but it essentially, for that person, it becomes true, and they will report that, which of course speaks to ethical concerns about the law and about witness testimony and everything else, but it also speaks to this greater point, which is what the brains do with the stuff that they have on hand sensorily, right? And I'll tell you one really quick story and then turn over to Bernie, which is I was in a walkabout safari when I was doing my, my human paleontology research as a graduate student in South Africa at about the time of the election, when, before Nelson Mandela was elected. I was in South Africa for a couple of months. And I went on a walkabout safari with a friend for about 10 or 12 hours, about 20, 25 kilometers out of Johannesburg. I'm walking, I'm marveling at these amazing horned undulates I'm seeing everywhere. I'm seeing kudu, eland, like that are standing shoulder high, this, this high to me. And I'm like, oh my God, and I'm taking it all in. And I'm wandering and all of a sudden, literally the hair in the back of my neck stands up. I kind of, a, a cold sweat comes over me. And I'm, I, and the only thing I'm aware of is, is the question I'm asking myself, why the hell is this happening? What's going on here? And I sort of start to dart around with my eyes. I look down on the ground and, and within about five seconds, my eyes meet the eyes of another animal. And that animal is a, is a baboon. And he's a foot and a half away from me and he's sitting on the ground and then my eyes take in the great big view. And it's not just one baboon, it's about 20 baboons. And they're all looking up at me. And again, the closest one is a foot and a half away. And if I kept on walking, I probably would have walked into him. He would have grabbed my arm, ripped it out of my, my, uh, you know, my thorax and beaten me to death with it. But it was an interesting notion and this interesting observation because it speaks to this sort of limited capacity we have. Obviously, somehow I was aware of something, or not aware, but my body, my body was responding to something and sending out essentially what amounts to sort of signals that we associate with danger or whatever. But I had no, uh, you know, really crystallized visual percept that was conscious to me. Um, but then again, it's very possible that the visual, the visual pathway was getting some information and feeding it in, but I wasn't aware of it. So this is really intriguing thing going on. Um, <laughs> what happened was I had to make a quick calculation and ask myself, well, do I walk backwards and do a Michael Jackson moonwalk out of the baboons? Or do I just sort of slowly walk forward virtuously and bravely? And I decided on the latter. So I was like, oh, do do. And the baboons were like, they were just bored. They were just like, you know, and I finally figured out, oh, don't make eye contact. Bad. <laughs> 
very bad, you know? And if the baboon rolls his eyes at the back of his head, you're dead. So, so I just kind of continued marching through and I had no problem, but it was the most extraordinary moment. And, and it was sort of, it left me in this weird state for the rest of the day. But it does speak to this sort of spotlight aspect to, to consciousness. It, it, it does, and, and it also speaks to something that William James tried to make a big point about, and made, did make, make a big point about beautifully in his 1890 book, Principles of Psychology, um, and that's about feelings of knowing. Uh, and feelings of knowing are, uh, in a sense, their intuitions but they can also be for peripheral input into the eye. There can be all kinds of subtle things happening. Uh, and suddenly we have a feeling of certainty about that which we are not sure about, if that makes any sense. Uh, and James tried to make people think about that. And immediately after he died, uh, uh, the be radical behaviorism took over. So James was taboo for decades. Um, and then people started to read him again. And I was one of the people who started to read him again, of course. Fortunately for the rest of us. <laughs> well, uh, uh, everybody should do this, right? Uh, don't leave it to me. Uh, 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 everybody got to read their, their James. Um, the, the, perhaps the most significant and beautiful passage in there is about the tip of the tongue experience, which he describes very beautifully and then comes to the right conclusions about it. But he doesn't have the theoretical vocabulary that we got from computers and cognitive psychology and so on. Uh, so he talks about it very clearly, because after all, it had been known by poets and by painters and by literary people. It had been known forever, basically. but. You have to have a special vocabulary to learn how to describe these things right. in ways that ultimately become testable. So in a way, that brings us sort of full circle, right? Don't you think in the sense of bringing respectability to subjective experience or the report of subjective experience, bringing it back to respectability and saying this does in fact have a place in science, even in so-called hard-nosed empirical science. Now, some might argue and. Bertie, I think you would agree with me. A lot of the science of consciousness right now boils down to correlations. That is to say, you're making a laundry list of the things that you observe happening in a human, in a human brain, and behaviorally in a human when they're reporting something consciously. And you say, oh, that particular waveform in the brain, in the, that part of, all, all over the cortex, that corresponds to the point at which the person is reporting a conscious experience. And this is a weird sort of notion in science, right? Because it's correlative. It's very, very strongly correlative, um, but it's still correlative. It's not as if you can map it, you know, it's not as if you can say, oh, there's a causal link per se, but you can correlate it in space and time. You can correlate that observation. And so you and I have written uh, at least two papers about this. Mm -hmm where we basically say, look, you can make a laundry list of all of these observations which hold absolutely true for human beings. And the question we asked ourselves early, early on was, can we apply these across non-human animals, many of whom, except perhaps for African gray parrots raised by the Irene Pepperbergs of the world, many of whom cannot give us 
a report in human language. They give us sort of something like a behavioral report. Mm -hmm. But if you can tick off all these things on that laundry list of correlations relative to the human, that is, you have the human case as your benchmark, you look at a non-human mammal and say, oh, wow, we have 18 correlative aspects, properties, and correlates of consciousness in humans that we know absolutely hold fast. They're there. Can we see these same things in non-human animals? And that, to a large degree, would inform, and I do believe it is informing, the science of consciousness as it extends out into the world of non-human animals. I think that's that's reasonable. Sure. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, question. Quick, quick question. How much overlap do you guys see between the two supposed distinctions of mind and body? Mm -hmm. The mind-body connection. What can you say about that theme? I, I have very passionate opinions about this, and you've just taken the risk. Of... <laughs> well, you know, you have a table separating you, so he won't lunge at you. Don't worry. We don't know each other intimately, so yes. we'll love to keep some borders I'll, I'll, I'll be very nice. Okay. Um, I, uh, I think every single philosopher in the world who asks that question of his freshlings uh, uh, you know coming innocently in into the classroom um, has to change the question because the problem uh, with it is that you're introducing the answer by asking the question in a certain way so what we do typically uh, uh, we uh, philosophers do typically I try to dodge my way around it. But it, what we try to do typically is turn it into an either-or question. You know, this, uh, David Chalmers right now is on a panpsychism kick. And, and what that means for him is that the universe is conscious, which sort of means the same thing as whatever the physicists are thinking today about the universe underlies uh, whatever is conscious. And my problem with that is that by asking it in an either-or way, you are forcing people to answer it in an either-or way. And there are many things, you know, like chickens and eggs, that, you know, may seem like dichotomies, uh, but they're not dichotomies. And, and what we need to do in those cases with empirical science, of course, is keep an open mind. Uh, and, and the problem is that once you, you know, are fiercely, fiercely defending whatever your position is on the so-called mind-body problem, uh, it's very hard to change from, from that position. So, so I think what you need to do is say, uh, can we focus in on this consciousness thing? Can we focus in on other constraints uh, on it, which many, many constraints, you know, very good artists use colors in, in, in very intelligent ways that they can articulate probably, or sometimes they do it in instinctively. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a constraint mm -hmm. on whatever it is we consider to, to be conscious. And, and an important thing, Bernie, I'm sorry to interrupt, an important thing is a lot of the, the backbone of modern science is 
asking discriminatory sort of questions, that what discriminates this from that? So to go back to David Chalmers, who's a philosopher, who's, who's lately, as Bernie said, he's been on a panpsychist kick for the past, well, I don't know, six or seven years, because he, he's fallen in with a view that's simpatico with a, a fellow named Giulio Tononi. And the notion that the universe... How is uh, that why you're <laughs> no, no. But the, the universe, the, the argument is the universe itself is suffused with consciousness, that consciousness exists on a continuum from rocks to iPhones to humans and to whatever the hell else is out there in the galaxy or across... Right. Yes, exactly. So here's the one thing that I, I, I don't necessarily think it's a roadblock, but I do think it's something that, that is, runs counter to what the kind of uh, framework that Bernie's worked out, which is Bernie starts with what he calls the difference that makes a difference, right? And if you assume that consciousness is pre-biological, that is, it was in the universe from the very start, well, what the hell distinguishes, you know, animals and the fact that there are many, many animals. In fact, the story of life, uh, you know, we can sort of reconstruct with living, simple living animals such that we can say, yeah, you know, the, the, it's not like the door of sensory experience has opened up for a huge swath of life. It, it really never did. But for some, it did. But if you're saying consciousness just simply sort of sits there suffused throughout the universe pre-biologically, long before there's ever life, well, where the hell is the difference? I mean, what's the difference that makes a difference? And I'm only asking that. I don't know the answer. I don't even know whether it's a, a valuable question, but I think it's an important, probably important question. It's a valuable question. Right. <laughs> so then would you have a similar take on uh, Daniel Dennett's com competence is our comprehension, saying that in living organisms, right, there's a level of self-organization that is competent because cells do things. Mm. Our liver is competent in what it's doing, but it's not conscious mm. or it's not comprehensive what it's doing. Mm. And so you think that's a useful approach to start thinking where? No. In a certain sense, I guess I, I might disagree. I might with Bernie. Sorry, Bernie. And there's not even a desk to protect me. So he may lunge at me at any moment. But but, you know, in a sense, you know, this notion that cells do certain things really, really well. What's extraordinary about the typical eukaryotic cell, particularly in, say, a mammal or another vertebrate is, you know, that cell is making 1,800 proteins or protein products, if you consider partially, you know, dissected out protein parts, peptides as proteins, et cetera, et cetera. It's making all these things. And somehow, in all of that soupy gamish, in all of that sort of protoplasm, stuff is coherently happening. So that may speak to sort of the issue of competence, right? And that's long, that's, you know, three billion plus years of evolution well before there's something that we might at least recognize as sentience. Sure. Uh, there's word problems uh, with all this, right? Because we talk about molecular signaling. Uh, and would you talk about molecular information processing? Oh, gosh. No, would I or should I? The answer to the second question is no. <laughs> this is the first question is maybe I'll try. Uh, <laughs> ask me the question again. <laughs> so, so you've got DNA and, and you have a few gates opening up because there's a molecule coming in. Yeah. And an epigenetic expression of some kind and you fall asleep, mm. right? Which means it has a lot to do with consciousness. It has something to do with consciousness. It has something to do with consciousness. Right. Okay. 
now, there's lots of people, as you know, who, who talk about this as a kind of biocomputational process or molecular computation, something mm. along those lines, mm -hmm. but without implying that it involves consciousness, uh, at least as a necessary part of it. Um, and, and so I think there is kind of a uh, two vocabularies that are emerging, or that emerged a long time ago, of course, with Watson and Crick. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the vocabularies is a kind of a computational vocabulary yes. DNA in some sense represents. Sure. Um, and, and RNA copies mm. in, in such a way that there's kind of an isomorphism between what mm -hmm. the DNA is saying and what the RNA products are saying, mm -hmm. so on. Uh, and eventually, you get the the you get the external expression of all that, right? Right. Which is which is what cells really, do. Really yeah. tough. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so that vocabulary, certainly since Watson and Crick, has seemed really attractive and very powerful. Also, it does not imply consciousness no. in any straightforward way. Okay. Okay. So. I think that it is, a, it, and, I, and I'm going to kind of uh, sort of not close with this, but we'll say ask one more, have one more person ask a question, and then we can sort of close things out. But to answer, here's a problem. Um, the problem is that we're often imposing sort of human inventions of logic. When we apply the word, the term computation to what it is that biology does, we're almost, uh, some of us, not necessarily all of us, some of us are assuming tacitly that it's sort of like a program, that a program is being running, something is being instructed to do something, right? There's a computational aspect. There's an algorithm that's quite, it, it may be sort of a little open-ended, but it's somewhat specific as well. I sort of have a problem with that. I, I kind of try to avoid, in terms of my descriptions of all biological systems, I sort of try to steer clear of computation, not necessarily because it's totally wrongheaded, but because it has us down a cul-de-sac which has already been defined by other parts of science, particularly artificial intelligence. Uh, all aspects of comp you know, computer engineering are suffused with this. That's imposing human invention extrinsically on the biological world. What do I really think is going on? What I really think is going on is it's a pretty goddamned messy palimpsest. And the great mystery, of course, is how order sort of comes out of this, but it sort of does. And it's not order in a, again, we have to be careful about what we, what we, re, what we represent as order in biology, because it's not specific, it's not point by point exact. We're not carbon copies of each other. There's variation. All right, and the system works well, but it doesn't work perfectly often. It works well enough, right? It's Mr. Right now, it's not Mr. Right. And that speaks to a central pillar of biology, which is the modern notion of, of evolution. First as defined by Darwin, but later elaborated, elaborated in the new synthesis in 1946, and then further elaborated by people like the great Stephen Jay Gould, who, who went off and actually opposed to some extent natural selection as a mechanism for coming up with new species. But the bottom line is, what is evolution about? Evolution is about a vast repertoire of stuff at all levels of biological organization, all kinds of things going six ways from sun, Sunday, and the world 
meshes with that and makes a selection upon a certain attribute that works well within a given moment. And that's what you sort of stick with and it's not perfect. And so you get variation. Right? A quick final one. Sure. Uh, a friend, um, uh, Christopher Koch, uh, sure. said that um, Crick at one point said, uh, nobody that doesn't have a Nobel Prize should ever mention the word consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> They'll lose their career. Oh, if you God. have a Nobel Prize, then you can talk about consciousness. Yeah, yeah. But this has been a fun, interesting, exciting one. Yeah. Skinner was the behavior guy that yeah. sort of got rid of the James thing. Yeah. Can you two give us a, 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 an over sketch of the schools? I mean, we know Tononi got a little excitement. Okay. But are there two or three... Different because now there's books on consciousness all over. Oh, everywhere. all over the place, right? And, and Is there three or four schools at this point that are jockeying for? Do you want me to, to unpack this, or would you like to? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I can reduce it fairly quickly, but go for it. Uh, okay, sorry, it's not my book talk, so I, I want to make that clear. Okay. Um, right now, <laughs> right now, there are perhaps three prominent takes on the nature and quality of consciousness right now in the world today, in the scientific world. There's Bernie's take, which is global workspace. We didn't even get around to, to yeah. doing a thumbnail for that, but you got to read the book. Yeah. You'll, get, you'll get there. So there's Bernie's take, which has been very, very influential and for good reason, right? And, uh, and in a lot of ways, what's beautiful about Bernie's take, the global workspace, is that the biological observations that have come to the fore in the past 30 years mm. are more or less starting to match it. And people like Stan DeHaan and his collaborator, uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Changeux, mm. they've integrated into their theory that they call global neuronal workspace. So that's, global workspace has sussed out some of the turf. So our Tegmark and Sean Carroll and those guys Oh, um, Max, Max Tegmark? Side or oh, no, no, no. Oh, oh no, no, no. <laughs> Max Tegmark is on the panpsychist side that the universe is a freaking conscious, consciousness, you know, uh, continuum. Um, but he falls in line more or less, give or take, with Giulio Tononi. And Giulio Tononi, along with Christoph Koch, they both have co-authored a number of papers. They're both on the same page. They do believe this. Christoph tends to be more vocal about the notion that the con that consciousness is sort of a, a suffuse a property that's suffused across all of the universe um, in a continuum. Um, so there's that view, the view that essentially, um, you know, that I don't even know how to describe integrated information, but that's the integrated information view of consciousness, um, which is too difficult to unpack in two minutes, much less whatever an hour. Um, and then, you know, there are views that are very, very firmly biological. And of course, global workspace sort of fits into that because, again, the biology is starting to match Bernie's initial thoughts about the way the conscious brain works. Um, there's neural, well, not neural Darwinism, but there's the dynamic core, which is an aspect of neural Darwinism that my late father worked on starting in, believe it or not, 1977 on a cocktail napkin at the neuroscience research program meeting in Boulder, Colorado. I was 17 years old at the time, and I didn't know half of what was going on, but I came to appreciate it many years later. But he worked out this notion that in, in effect selection, it's, it's not just that it's turtles all the way down, the, the biological universe, it's selection all the way down. And the brain is no exception. He started off as an immunologist and he learned very quickly when he was deciphering the structure of the, the human antibody, he learned in fact that the prevailing view in the 1950s, which was instruction, 
which is the idea that an antibody approached an antigen and somehow it changed its folding, would change its, its conformation, its shape. And as soon as it's changed its shape, it would send a signal into the cell carrying it, the cell would divide and therefore make more of that particular antibody, that shape, that clone. That was half right. So what that was was instruction. The antibody was shaping itself to the world, to the incoming pathogen, the antigen. My father later came along, along with a bunch of other people, and said, hey, that can't possibly be right because it would exhaust itself. It's not a good enough representative system for an immune system to mount a good response to, to, danger, to dangerous pathogens. And he said, look, you start with a repertoire of antibodies. The repertoire is rich, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of different types or shapes of antibodies. And as an antigen makes its way perhaps through your lymph node, where all the different kinds of representative shapes of antibodies are, the shape that's good enough to kill the antigen eventually latches on statistically more probable in something like the lymph node or whatever. And then the signal is sent, but it's not that the antibody is changing its shape. It had a, the, the body had a pre-existing repertoire of antibodies to match it. And that later not only became the prevailing view, it's accepted as fact everywhere now. The only distinction is back 40 years ago, we started understanding how you could generate diversity in this system because that's another important element of evolution, right? And of, of any kind of selectional system. You have to keep the repertoire rich. You have to keep on adding new and variable stuff to keep it in line with an ever-changing world. And so people worked out genetically how antibodies could sort of change, how, how you could generate new kinds of antibodies in the life of an organism, even as an adult, so, right? So those are the three, three so big. Who's the so biggest oh, collaborator? About the book. So, so, Bernie's the biggest yeah, who, who are you? Who are you partnered up with? Uh, anybody who's willing to talk about these things. Well, I mean, Christopher Koch and Tononi and those guys are in their camp. Who's in your camp? Stan DeHaan. Oh, oh, Stan DeHaan. There's quite a lot of people. Stan um, But I don't think we mount a crusade so much. <laughs> now, somebody, somebody asked, "What about the book?" What about I the heard, book? I heard yeah. the question. What about? The okay, book? all right, the book, Bernie. Wait, uh, 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 let, let me just say, in terms of selectionism and all that, where does the cortex come in? And particularly the conscious aspects of cortex at any given moment. You're asking me? Yes. Okay. So you can think of the cortex as a rich collection, a rich repertoire of different possible patterns of connectivity. And again, remember that 32 million years idea and the number of possible connections? That means it's an incredibly hyper-rich repertoire with which you can match the world as a, as a living organism, with which you can, what, you can bring to the world something that can come up with a good enough sort of representation to engender perhaps survival, or if you're talking about language, understanding, whatever else. To get back to the nature of the book, Bernie, um, I just want you to give, and I, this is not going to be quick, quick, I'll try to make it quickly, but yeah. tell them what, essentially tell them what, without going into the details of the anatomy, tell them what Global Workspace is. What does it say? Which is the central point yeah. of your work. Yeah. Uh, global Workspace theory, uh, GWT, came from Alan Newell's work uh, in what he called a Global Workspace architecture. And it was very impressive work to me in the 1970s, because Newell's team at Carnegie Mellon cracked a problem that was supposed to be impossible at the time. 
And that was the problem of acoustical speech recognition. So they, basically, uh, the predecessor of DARPA uh, came up with a challenge. And whatever, however it was phrased, it was basically, we're gonna, we are going to give you a thousand words, and they're just going to be in, in ASCII code, you know, just a letter code, totally arbitrary. Um, and we're going to give you a speaker, a normal speaker, which means a really sloppy speaker, you know, because human beings, most of us, uh, speak pretty awfully. Uh, and you're going to be sitting in a normal room like this one with all kinds of echoes coming off the hard surfaces and being absorbed by soft surfaces, like the books, for example. Um, and so this signal gets mushed in all kinds of unpredictable ways. And how are you going to con construct a computer system that's going to uh, be able to identify this thousands, set of thousands of words? And they solved it. Uh, and they didn't solve it by making up a brilliant algorithm. Uh, they solved it by having a whole bunch of different uh, uh, knowledge sources, they called them. And they could be in computers, they could be in particular memory locations, whatever. They're, they're active. Uh, and they are, that was what we call an agent architecture or swarm architecture or crowdsourcing architecture. And the basic idea, of course, is that the, the market is generally smarter, smarter than any individual in the market. Uh, so it's a crowd, crowd uh, contributions and crowd voting so that ultimately you, you post a bunch of hypotheses about the incoming acoustics and vote on the, you know, what's the closest one? And your different knowledge sources have different kinds of talents and information and match <clears throat> matches that they can make. And using that kind of architecture, which is very much like a beehive, using that kind of architecture, it turns out that you do much, much better than any of the competitors at that time. And maybe somebody can correct me if this is true. I think that Siri, uh, the Apple speech recognition setup, occasionally still does uh, crowdsourcing, meaning that it broadcasts information over the web. And there's any variety of computers, and maybe there are human beings, they don't tell us this, uh, who, who listen to it. And for difficult problems, I think they're still doing crowdsourcing. Is, is that correct? I'm not positive, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I know Siri's not as good as Google, that's for sure. So Bernie, do you think, do you think, so that maps, you can think of the cortex in a sense as nodes of different sort of fonts of information. And somehow, uh, there's a polling that occurs, right? That would be sort of something like what what's happening in global workspace and an eventual broadcast. Unpack or that. Or it's a neural Darwinist process where, where you start with a very gross approximation and, and then you have perhaps competing populations of neurons uh, that are trying to win access to the broadest uh, uh, a spreading uh, of of whichever signal they favor. So so there, uh, there's really very very close relationship uh, between several different ways of, of looking at this neural Darwinism is one of them. 
Um, Tononi, for some reason, went in the wrong direction. I hate to say this. Uh, but Tononi is looking for the soul, and so is Christo. Um, and I'm afraid they're not going to find the divine soul in where they're looking for it. They, there might be another way uh, to find it, but you probably have to die first. Uh, but in, in any case, uh, they're looking for the jewel and the lotus. Uh, and that's abiological, if, if you will. Uh, that's the, that is not the way either cognition works or perception, conscious perception or unconscious processes for that matter. Um, they work in a different way and, and you have to follow the evidence, you know, wherever it leads. Mm. And at some point, I suspect, and you know, these are really smart, interesting, well-meaning people, uh, but they somehow took a wrong turn someplace. And, and I think that this may be a good note to end on, which is that, you know, fundamentally, as much as, you know, modern psychology does, of course, figure prominently into all of this. And, you know, we have human language, we have these things that are sort of these somatic uh, forms of adaptation that seem to some people, at least, maybe untethered to biology. Fundamentally, consciousness like all higher brain function has a biological root, has some sort of biological basis. And we can, we can say that with relative confidence when we look at the human case, because we have all these co correlative meanderings of neurons, of, of synapses, of neuronal groups in, 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 you know, firing at a particular moment when awareness comes to light. And that's not accidental. I don't think we can say that that's going, if it's, a, if it's just coincidental, there's a lot of coincidence going on and I don't think it's coincidental. Um, so we have that. So I think it's a great mistake to shunt aside biology just because it's really, really difficult to map our subjective experience, subjective feelings to this actual heart biology. And it speaks to, of course, to the Cartesian question, right? And Cart Descartes often gets a bad rap for this. I think people oversimplify him, and I think Bernie might agree with this. Mm -hmm. But this notion of separating mind and body, and, and you know, res cogitans versus you know, res extensa, well, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's no actual separation per se. That's sort of the mythology. The problem is we still haven't really fully successfully bound um, something that is non-material thought to the gray, gray and white matter that are quite material, that are doing stuff that seems to result in this immaterial stuff. And that still stands as what some people would say is, is a, a central problem or a central, a central roadblock in consciousness research. I'm not so sure it is. I think we can leave it open-ended here and not really hold forth on what we personally believe. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, I am determined to have free will. There you go. And that's how I, I think I I'll end. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I like that. Good. Thank you. I'm neuroscientist David Edelman. Thank you for listening and for tuning into the podcast On Consciousness with Bernard Bars.